Hello and welcome to this episode of the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. This quick introduction is necessary because of recent events, one of them being that my computer managed to crash entirely and lose a whole bunch of files. Now normally I'm very good about these things and keep up not just one backup copy but two or three just in case, but it's been a bit of a rough year and I can't say I've been at my best, so I've been a little bit distracted. You're going to notice this with the editing because this conversation was in the middle of the process of editing before the crash occurred and all I have is a final file that I can't do much with anymore. So it's going to end in a strange manner and the sound quality is not the best but it certainly is listenable and enjoyable and it's a great conversation that you won't want to miss out on. It's the first one in which I have a couple on and I must say they behaved very well. No bickering no arguing. Not like me and my wife. Oops, I guess I shouldn't say that in case she's listening. Kidding, just kidding. But it's been a rough year and it's been interesting for me and I thought I might just say a couple of things about it. Some of you may be aware of one or two of the reasons by following the blog on a regular basis. I've had pretty serious health issues and unfortunately they've, well, mutated into something new or rather the problems I've had so far this year and on and off over the last two, three years have all come together under a single diagnosis that I shan't bore you with, but it's pretty serious stuff and it's quite a challenge to manage it. But as, you know, as I am, well, required to say, I shall do my best to live in hope with things getting better. Now, when these things happen, I think they present all kinds of challenges, but also opportunities. And I say that not in a trite, positivistic gung-ho, pragmatist American way, because I'm, I'm not any of those things. I consider myself to be a realist first and foremost, whatever that might mean, but it means I do try my best to try and just look at things as clearly as possible without ending up in a debate about truth and objectivity, which I think we can skip if we're sensible for a moment. It has been objectively a tough year, experientially a year of great transformation and depth of, well, suffering and loss and change. And I think it's important to talk about these kinds of things in public, not just because we live in something of a therapeutic age and I'd like everybody to feel good about themselves. That's certainly not my case. In fact, this is where I find Buddhism more interesting in its sense of morality and ethics and its overall vision of a life which is encumbered by suffering and not much hope for a happy ending. I prefer that and I think it's interesting to navigate that without descending into pessimism or nihilism or some other ism that makes you kind of feel cynical and miserable about the whole affair. I find that those tend to be strategies for survival and many from my own generation X would tend to take the cynical route just to manage the depth and weight and pain that such observations can provide if you really let them infiltrate your experiential world and life. In fact, one of my great interests in terms of practice is how we avoid feeling things, how we avoid thinking things, how we avoid seeing things and being honest about things. These are, again, quite broad categories that some of you will interpret differently to myself, of course, but I think that they are universal enough, or at least uh, to grab some sense of what I might be pointing towards. And I think it's been evident as well in the kinds of conversations I've been having with people. And I'm saying it 
not only because it's a major theme of my own year, but because it plays out in the conversation I have with Brooke and Zach in today's conversation, which is an attempt really to get beyond the kind of utopian, dystopian fantasies which grip so much of our current visions of the world, especially politically. And as you all know, the political is still running through as a thread in many of these conversations I'm having uh, most recently. And although I like to keep that to a relative minimum and always relate it to the practicing life, I think it probably will be continuing somewhat with the conversations I've got coming up next. But hopefully we will avoid the let's say, less imaginative edges of our current political crisis, because you don't need me to talk about them, do you? There are plenty of people doing that already, and many of them actually doing so rather intelligently. There are less folks than I would like challenging the norms within their own political tribes. But hey, I think that's really only set to increase as we go on, because these things can only run the course for so long before you know certain people start to realise, well, okay, there's some dysfunction going here that has to be engaged with. You know, I spent most of the political turn talking about that kind of thing, and uh, I don't need to repeat that either. Finally, to whet the appetites of those who really have had enough of politics and would like to avoid it, Please do be aware that the conversation today touches on some profoundly personal and emotional themes such as love and care and commitment and the role of the practicing life in navigating the great challenges of our time. I don't think any of us can avoid facing the facts that are screaming at us constantly to do something whether it's the economic decline of the Western world, the rise of China and its thoroughly dystopian view and practices, or its environmental decay, or whether it's the ongoing tribal politics we see in the States and in the UK and increasingly across Europe. We are, in a sense, inundated with challenges to our own sense of being and our own concept of what practice is and what it should be. We have folks who would love to maintain a traditional boundary between their religious practices and the rest of the world. Brad Warner seems to be one of those chaps. Then we have others who think that everything you do as a Buddhist or post-Buddhist is always political. Now, I don't support or believe much in either of those positions. I think they're both highly politicized and deeply problematic. I think that we humans are always challenged by the times we live in, as you all know if you're paying attention, and that we must always find the most effective way to navigate these challenges and not lose our sanity. Brooke and Zach are certainly engaging with that challenge, and I think they have a lot to offer even as they admit that they are struggling too with these great big questions. But then again, who isn't? So check out this conversation, enjoy it, and uh, I hope you get something out of it. Hello and welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Today we have two guests, 
Brooke D. Lavelle is the co-founder and president of the Courage of Care Coalition. And Zach Walsh, who was actually with us about a year ago discussing the spiritual commons amongst many topics, co-leads the A Mindset for the Anthropocene project at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, Germany. In many ways, Brooke and Zach are a response to the question of what to do when thinking about one's desire to make a difference in the world. They are both active in different forms of practice that are seeking to address injustice, whether in terms of we messy, confused humans or the environment at large. They are not only engaging practically in Buddhist materials and groups and with contemplative practices, but they are doing so in the academic world too. And they are also thinking deeply about the existential nature of climate change and injustice and seeking to act in ways that would support those struggling with the seemingly endless challenges our species is currently facing. Now, my interest, I must admit, lies a little bit more with ecology, society and species survival than the sort of activism that Brooke might be involved in. And for this reason, I want to start with Brooke and so we can give adequate time to looking at the work she's currently doing before moving on to, well, this massive change that we're seeing in terms of civilization, the environment and potential collapse, although hopefully it'll be more of a transition. But before we get on to that, let's get going with our guest. Now, let's begin with you then, Brooke. Can you summarize for us who you are and what you are currently doing that we should know about? I'm Brooke Lavelle, and I'm the co-founder of Courage of Care, and I have a history of training in Buddhist studies and cognitive science, and more recently have become really interested in how we help people, so-called in the work, those in social service and caring professions, stay alive, stay engaged. And I'd say the thing that's most on my mind these days is how we help all folks who care about our world, which I think is almost everyone. Stay awake to the fact that, yes, the world's on fire and stuff is not going well. And at the same time, there's beauty everywhere. And I think holding both of these visions, the sense that there's a lot of work we have to do as human beings, literally to ensure survival, and at the same time, recognize that many of people around the world are doing amazing work is actually the kind of the edge of spiritual practice. And that's where I feel like I land, whether it's in social justice work, spiritual practice work, or ecological sustainability work. That's kind of the edge that I love playing in these days. Great. And what about you, Zach? Can I ask you the same question for those that don't remember our chat a year ago? So can you also summarize who you are and what you are currently doing? Although I understand that's actually quite a lot. <laughs> that's true. Um, everything I'm doing is connected, but there are a lot of different threads. And it's, it's around the sort of core work that Brooke described and how, to, how does social and eco-justice intersect with spiritual practice, with inner development, with personal development. And I'm working currently at an Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies. It's a German-funded think tank outside of Berlin and Potsdam, Germany. and I'm really a researcher in that context, and I'm trying to bring different groups of people together who are focusing on policy, who are focusing on activism, grassroots sort of organizing, to the understanding of sustainability in a much um, more integrative way of connecting the inner dimensions of sustainability to the outer dimensions of transformation, like regulation, governance, politics, and what have you. And so I'm, I'm doing a lot of research and writing. I'm organizing events. I'm, I'm engaging in community practice around these issues. Um, and I'm also working with Brooke and the Courage of Care Coalition to sort of develop their eco-justice and their, their climate justice curricula and trainings. Hmm. 
Mm, all very interesting. Now, there are two types of conversations I want to have here, and both are explorative, but with slightly different concerns. The first is a further exploration of the work you are both currently doing, and the second is more of a challenge or critique, perhaps, of some of the, the language and concepts around these areas. Um, I guess I view this critique as a form of creative inquiry, and in part it emerges out of the long-term engagement with both non-Buddhism and post-traditional Buddhism, and, uh, you know, a, a critical engagement more generally. But I'm very, very sympathetic to, you know, the role of the, the human within all of that and the role of the emotions and the role of the body and, of course, relationships, which is a big theme that comes up in your work, Brooke. Let's start with this question. It's a little bit personal, but I think it's always helpful for both me and listeners more generally to ask the question, why are you doing all this? What is it that got you started on it in the first place? And is there a particular desire that's driving your desire to try and resolve or solve or, or meet in a functional and helpful manner many of these problems? And why, why did you take that path rather than, let's say, I don't know, become a doctor or a lawyer? Hmm, that's such a good question. And I think dropping into the personal is where we could all benefit. I think if we spoke to each other's stories, we'd be making a little more progress. Um, there's a long story and a short story. I mean, there's this saying, and we've been saying this a lot lately within our communities, we teach what we need. Growing up outside of New York City and New Jersey um, with a single mom, I have a story of pain and I have a story of trauma and I have a story of witnessing and equity that I could talk about. But I think as someone awake um, in the world, you don't have to look far to see that. And that's been something from a very young age that I feel like a thread I followed. Um, questions around belonging, inclusion, equity, et cetera. And then there's a significant period of loss that happened in my life in my late teenage years, um, in late adolescence. And that turned me even more deeply into spiritual practice. And that also had been a thread, but I had never growing up been part of a traditional religious tradition, even though I grew up in a very very Catholic-centered neighborhood and went to Catholic school. But I followed this thread and looking for like, how do we deal with loss and how do we deal with the purpose of life and questions around meaning that probably many other folks around that same age were really grappling with. And that sent me um, on a path to India, Tibet, Nepal, where I became obsessed with the questions of awakening. And most of my early academic work was actually around different models of enlightenment. Like, what does it mean to wake up what does it mean to wake our hearts up, to wake our minds up? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be fully human? And how do we get there? And maybe, I don't know, this is the American spirit. I wanted to know how to do it as quickly as possible. <laughs> so what was the right path? And, you know, before long, and by before long, I mean before a 10-year, basically, PhD program, I realized, like, there's not one path. And that became the topic and obsession of my dissertation. There's not one method against one method. And that idea was like, there are many ways to do this work that we called being alive. And that led me into work around um, interfaith dialogue, interspiritual dialogue, questions within the tradition around authenticity, authority, hierarchy, questioning, like who tells us what life we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to live it. And I started realizing as I was doing that work that my journey kind of deeply into spiritual practice in doing that 
while I went deep in some ways that were really fulfilling and nourishing and hopefully helpful um, to those in social service professions that I ended up working with, right? Like I ended up teaching a lot of mindfulness, relational compassion practices early on in my career in health context and education context. But I realized that in doing that, there was a kind of part of me that had been siloed or silenced. And that was this like very, very strong commitment to what I might call equity or justice, like the caretaking of all of us and in, in the pursuit of waking up. And it was in um, being steeped in these different spiritual communities that I started realizing that part of the reason was a, a, my own personal turn, like where I went to kind of get help in that sense for the trauma or the difficulties I was experiencing. But I started to become aware of the fact that many of the spiritual communities, and these were primarily Western Tibetan Buddhist communities in the United States, many of those communities lacked, to my mind, a kind of social justice or equity frame. And so I realized it wasn't just me cutting off that spiritual or social justice inquiry, but it was the very containers or communities within which I found myself. And something started waking back up um, in me, and I became really interested in how to link or bridge those two facets, which you know, ironically, like, why were they ever even separate in my mind? Or why did I ever think somehow like personal development was separate from social justice or awakening? I don't know. And that's maybe a question we could deal with. But that set me that set me on like another path to say like spiritual practice really should be for the world, not just for one's own awakening, which is not how I understood myself to be taking it up. But in practice, I realized I was leaving like a whole world of meaning behind in a way. And that's you know, there's some other steps there, but that's really what led us into courage was to say, how do we bring forward more of a social justice or equity frame right within our spiritual traditions? How do we make spiritual practice for the world? And that's, in a sense, how courage was born. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you kind of anticipated one of my questions, really, which is, is one I'm, I increasingly feel like asking to American guests, you know, which is how American is is it all? You know, how much of an American tale is this? And I think that mentioning of the point of, you know, this uh, this split between an overfocus on the individual and one's personal development as somehow being in contrast to, well, social commitment, social justice, but also social responsibility is, is an interesting one. And I think that's part of the legacy we, we're all contending with from the last century, right? And the century of the self as a uh, mm-hmm. Uh, one of the great uh, British uh, intellectuals once called it, whose name I've obviously forgotten. But um, one question that lingers really before we perhaps discuss some of some of the content of, of that is, you know, what are you what are you still looking for? What's still what's still bubbling under the spring, so to speak? What is it that you feel you haven't quite done yet that you'd really like to achieve, perhaps in the next few years or in your lifetime? Oh, that's a good question. Um, to your first point, though, I, I really appreciate that question. Is this an American project or an American enterprise? And part of that resonates really deeply with me. And I just wanted to respond to that, mm. to the sense that, you know, all of our claims in much of our courage work and the work we're doing with Zach and others is that we need to reclaim a relationality, that we've kind of fallen from a relational way of being and knowing into this like autonomous individual sense of selves, like the century of the self pointed to in a way. Mm. And I appreciate that. I, and I also recognize that there are many people and communities around the world um, for whom that fall into, uh, fall from grace or fall from relationality 
into a kind of hyper individuality is not the same kind of truth that many Americans and some in other Western cultures have developed. And I appreciate that. Mm. And at the same time, part of my sense is, unfortunately, because of the reach <laughs> of some kinds of American culture and other Western cultures and capitalism and the global economy, many of us, regardless of our kind of intuition or felt sense of self, I think are forced to play sometimes in hyper individualized markets or ways of doing work and business. And so that frame, I think, has affected many of us, whether we we like it or not or want to embrace it or not. And so I both want to say like the yes end, like yes is an American project. And in that way, like there's a certain kind of humility that's required, I appreciate. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like how do we not only lift up voices who've been holding this relational frame for so long, but also help help us all kind of push back and reclaim relationality in like every corner of our life and shared work, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, where, where am I going? You know, I think what we've been doing lately with courage, that's really exciting to me is for years, we were teaching this relational compassion model and helping us learn how to develop a kind of sustainable way of being in the work and integrating that with what folks might call an anti-oppressive pedagogy or structural competency and really spending time to link, um, uh, you might think of a social justice and spiritual project. And there's infinite more work to do in that direction. And what's got me excited is instead of moving from that work to action, which I've seen a lot of groups do, um, sometimes really well and sometimes not, we've really hit pause and said we're kind of at a time where what we really need collectively is healing. We don't really need new maps or new interventions or new models. We really need to find ways of bringing communities together for collective healing. And also that requires our own intrapersonal or individual healing at the same time. And we really wanted to honor like the role of healing within, you might say, activism work, within social justice work, within caring professions and say like, what does healing actually look like? And hopefully not fall into the self-care pitfalls that are also a problem within American the American cultural landscape. Mm-hmm. But how do we really hit pause on healing and what does healing really look like? And that's been really rich and incredibly generative, I think, for folks on our team. And I think this is the next five, 10, 25 year project. Like, what does healing look like? And how do we not fall into pitfalls of healing as cure or some perfect state? Like, folks like Eli Claire have been teaching us about, but how do we really understand healing as like really coming home, accepting who we are, being back in love with ourselves and each other. And that's, that's a direction I really want to pursue. Mm-hmm. This thing of um, activism and people burning out has been around obviously for a long time. It makes me think of two contexts. The first one is when I was very young in the uh, late 70s, 80s, I was involved, well, forcibly involved, you might say, in my dad's political activism. (laughs) And what was interesting was that there were two particular things that were going on amongst many of his cohorts. And and one was kind of like a, I would say, a retreat to the intellect and the intellectualization of the entire pursuit of some form of justice or protest or political change. And the second was that, you know, people burnt out. But of course, it was the 70s and 80s. So many of them did so by, you know, drinking too much and losing themselves in drugs. The second context which comes to my mind is with friends from the States and uh, the UK and actually across Europe in the 90s going forwards who were very active, you know, in environmental activity. It wasn't called activism back then, would have been called political engagement. And again, the despair and the capacity for people to become 
utterly lost and fall into genuine depression was pretty common. And I think that um, it's right that, you know, you've spoken about this need for people to address the question of, of what is healing. And, and I think that's interesting. Of course, one of the problems here is that some of these words you've used are also intimately bound up with the whole self-development, you know, sort of self-focus again. And, and I kind of feel like interrogating a couple of the words that you've mentioned. The first word you started out with was relationality. And yeah. that's a word that I guess could potentially speak for itself, but it would be best if you, you explained it somewhat. And the second one, I mean, you, you, you also said, you know, we need to kind of figure out what healing is without this self-focus. So I guess the question, if I was to be a little bit more specific, would be, can you define relationality for us a little bit and explain how that would contrast with excessive individualism? And secondly, what do you understand about healing so far, especially into a, in relation to a point you just made, which I think is fundamental, the loss of this fantasy about a final cure? which I think mm. we'll later in the conversation we can also use to interrogate the whole idea of awakening. But let's start off with that. <laughs> I think the self-help movement, at least in the United States, and maybe I should just be careful to speak from that perspective, um, has been so enmeshed with this idea of an autonomous self that what we think of as self-care, or what I think many folks think of as self-care is I'm going to do all that I can to make myself into a better person. And that might be a good person, that might be more of an activist, that might be more of a carer, or that might be more healthy so that I can pursue my goals and make more money or whatever. And I think we've lost the sense that uh, self-care is actually, in our view, actually fundamentally relational, that there's no taking care of the self or there's no self-care or self-wellness without collective wellness. And when we speak about relationality or being back in relationship, we think about it on multiple levels or different registers. And so on some level, it's about helping us sense that um, or release the sense that we're bounded selves, that we're these autonomous little things interacting with other beings in the world and, and mistakenly thinking that other beings or the earth is actually here for our own pleasure, our own fulfillment. And how do we sense more and more that we're part of a we or part of a fabric of the world. And we do that in a way through somatic training, through contemplative training, through reflection. And in a way, it's kind of an embodied feeling. It's not just an idea like, oh, I'm relational, I'm interdependent. Yes, I'm part of the whole. No, like what does it feel like to move through the world and feel like you're not on your own or to feel like you're not moving through the world in the same way these other orbs are moving through the world? And if we took this all the way down, I, fundamentally, our stance is actually non-dual. Like, what does it mean to see that there's no separate I or no separate sense of self from the other? And in a way, we're influenced by boobers, I, thou, and there are many forms of relationality out there, different kind of spiritual traditions. Almost every mystical tradition, I think, points in this direction. But I think even for our own social justice work or activism work, what does it mean to think of ourselves as a broader part of the we and that the work, in a sense, is really for and on behalf of all? And what do we really mean by that all? Like all, all the way down, what does that really mean? And that's what we're holding on to when we think about relationality. So the second word that uh, I thought we might want to speak to as well would be the word healing. And when you originally spoke about it a moment ago, you were very honest in interrogating that term already, which is, you know, what is, what is healing? And this relates to what you've just said about relationality. But again, I think it's worth expressing a little bit further or expanding upon, 
which is what is healing if we have no essential essence within us somewhere hiding out then that kind of challenges the whole notion of healing to some degree the other part of that of course is the fact that there's no final healing right there's no fully totally healed individual somewhere that's free of all psychoses or you know i don't know intellectual or emotional or psychological dysfunction so in a sense i wonder i wonder to what degree the whole concept of healing is a form of negotiation with the patterns of you know individual and shared suffering and dysfunction but also the thing that often gets left out of these kinds of discussions which is the inevitable limitations of our our physical beings right which we can we can re-fall in love with and fall in love in it with again in a way that perhaps we'll get onto in the next question. But at the same time, our bodies are, are full of the potential for pain and difficulty and feelings of suffocation and so forth. So how are you viewing healing and, and what degree does, I don't know, a concept like realism or, or pragmatism come into when you're thinking about that and discussing that in your groups? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love this. And so healing is a, is a kind of live word for us and a word that we're holding and playing with. So we, I don't have, like to your point, I don't think there is a final state that is healed. I, I want to lift up Eli Clare's work on healing. All of it's beautiful and it's really, especially currently, really influencing the way I think about healing and the way many of us within Courage are thinking about healing. And part of the tension is that I think we have a kind of uh, cultural tendency to see healing as restoring deficit or making good. And there are all of these normative assumptions of what it means to be healthy and well within our various cultural contexts. And there's often, or maybe always, <laughs> an inherent danger when we're talking about the normative good in a way. And so I have cautions about thinking of like, what does it even mean to be good, to be well, to be human, to be alive? And I said earlier, my obsession with different models of awakening and my realization in and through that is that not only are there many paths to awakening, but there are probably many awakenings and that there's not a final end state. Like, I don't think there's any final ticket out of here, whatever that means, (laughs) you know, that we're in this ongoing process of learning how to be with the good, the bad, the ugly change, right? In a way. So I'm worried about certain notions of healing, like restoring or reinforcing kind of dangerous ideas of, of the good. And, you know, we see that in, even in the healthcare and wellness industry now, like what is, what's our goal of, is it to become thin to like be part of the whole goop movement or whatever that is to spend all our money on like looking or being or feeling a certain way. And how do we ignore many different kinds of ways of being in the world, many different kinds of bodies of beings, et cetera, in that pursuit of a certain kind of understanding of, of health and wellness. And then I think another danger when we think about healing, especially within our social service professions or healing traditions or healing modalities, is I think there's a subtle danger or subtle tendency to equate healing with happiness or freedom from pain. Like somehow we transcend all of this difficulty, like somehow we will get to the perfect state of being in the world where we'll never need to deal with change. We won't have to worry about the climate. We won't have to worry about injustice. We won't have to worry about racism. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. And that's not to say that I don't still at the same time believe in the possibility of a better world or a beloved community, but that I think change is an inherent part of existence and that we will always be negotiating as humans or some other species, we'll always be negotiating change. And that for me, that's not just a spiritual view. That's like a, that's a deep systems view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the word negotiating as well. It's it's one I I use quite a lot in my own thinking about these kinds of topics. And 
I also appreciate the fact that you critiqued this idea that we might be able to dig out some universal good somewhere. <laughs> and, you know, it's good to use that word normative again as well. I, I kind of always feel though that as soon as we get comfortable with one term or another, we probably have to interrogate it and see where it needs to be critiqued as well. And not for the, you know, the purpose of deconstructing everything, but for building a richer, more complete understanding whilst recognizing that, you know, a total understanding or complete anything is impossible. Let's move on to another interesting word that pops up. Um, otherwise, I'm going to just be saying too many nice things about you both. Uh, there's a lot of talk of love in your material book, whether that's on the Courage of Care site or in other locations. And I don't know if I can ask you this question, but I guess I'm going to, which is, what is love? What do you mean by that? And why did you put love at the heart of so much of what it is that you're offering? Where does that come from? And I say that really because I think a lot of people are instinctively quite uncomfortable with an emotion like love. Is this for me or for Zach? Yeah, who starts? <laughs> <laughs> you, whoever wants to start can go for that one. Who's feeling great, a greater degree of love right now? There we go. Me. And <laughs> go for it, Brooke. Let's see what you've got to say. The choice of love was intentional. And I realized that love is not a word with a lot of cultural cachet in certain circles. And that was on purpose. Um, and I see, I think we're seeing a resurgence of love within movement circles, within activist circles. Hilary Lazar wrote a beautiful dissertation um, called Reclaiming Love as a Political Paradigm Shift that I recommend. And Part of our purpose of picking love as opposed to compassion or care was to highlight that. And when I think of love, um, I think of it as a relational stance, so not just an emotion. And this is the same way we would describe compassion. I think of love and compassion as two sides of the same coin. And by motivational stance, and this comes from the work of Paul Gilbert, who developed compassion-focused therapy, who's one of my main mentors is that love as a stance is guiding the way we orient to the world. It's guiding our thoughts, our behaviors, the way we interact. And when we think of love as a stance or compassion as a stance to borrow from the work of the ethic of risk um, by womanist thinkers like Alice Walker and the ethic of care, like feminist thinkers like Nell Nottings and Carol Gilligan, we're talking about a way of orienting in which love for the pursuit of connection, of uplifting joy, creativity, upholding each other as worthy of care, sensing when others are in pain and need and being able to respond to that with no expectation of, of return or even figuring it all out, that that's, a, that that's a particular stance or way of being in the world. And we wanted to start with that in part because we think love is relational, compassion is ultimately relational. We learn how to be more loving and compassionate, not by taking an online course or by studying it on our own, but by learning the ways that others have modeled love and care for us. And that can be with our family of origin, caring figures, ancestors, et cetera, that that's relational and that love points us back into relationship even more directly. And the last thing I'll say is love, if we borrow like the language of eros and power, love is what keeps us in the work. It's not just a soft emotion to kind of blunt all the pain or keep us connected so we can blunt all the suffering, um, although there's data for that. But love is like, why do we do this work other than because we are in love with each other? We are in love with the world. Why else would we get out of bed every morning if we were, if not for love in that way? And that's why we think of it as so core to the work of courage. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. And it? I still can't help but think that so many people will, <laughs> will feel thoroughly uncomfortable with what you've just described. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. 
but I would say that I like the idea of it being a stance, which kind of kind of makes it more proactive in a sense, right? It's a position or it's an approach that you would adopt quite deliberately because of the the weight of the term love in common culture. It's likely to trigger quite a lot of reactions from quite a wide range of folks. But looking at it that way is slightly different. I mean, you also seem to be hinting at another word that could stand in for it when you spoke of getting up in the morning, which is passion or desire. You know, what is it that that keeps us keeps us in the game, so to speak, which is one of the reasons why I asked you that question early on. What is it, you know, that brought you to all of this kind of work? But congratulations for being brave enough to use this word. And I'd like to ask <laughs> you, Zach, um, what do you make of that? What's your what's your position on this? What are your thoughts so far on this? And and how comfortable do you feel talking about love in this way? Yeah, thank you for the question. So I'm actually really enjoying sort of in a very more, I feel, subversive way working with love against the sort of common understandings of love, as you said, as an emotion or, say, romantic love or sort of the cultural ideas that are sort of inherited with or without our choosing, um, but which come with, I, I think, a lot of problematic baggage. And instead, as sort of Brooke beautifully articulated, working with it as an active and, and often challenging stance of a way of being in the world, in relationship to each other and taking responsibility for each other's suffering, for each other's healing, because my healing and suffering are intrinsically connected to others' healing and suffering. And so I'm, I'm sort of now using the, work in, uh, using the word in my own work in new ways that I didn't even expect a year ago, and part, partly because I'm working with the Courage of Care Coalition and sort of working with the concept in a, in a much more central way but I also recognize, funny enough, what I haven't mentioned also in the earlier interview with you, Matthew, is that the AMA project stands for two things, actually. AMA, more colloquially, is the, a mindset for the Anthropocene to try to communicate the sense in which we're uh, holistically looking at sustainability from um, inside and outside, right, and trying to integrate those aspects. But also, it's, it's the, the root is a Latin word amare, which is to love, right? So it's, this, it's almost hidden sort of um, subversive message within the word itself, which to your point also, I think drives a lot of people away. And for good reason, again, I myself didn't use the, the word in my work um, several years ago, but I'm liking it more and more because actually it's very challenging. Um, and, and I think it's hard to sort of communicate through words what we mean. It really takes practice and a sort of culture of practice to work with a sense of relationality and relationality in situations that, that are really highly demanding, that, that require really collective capacity in addition to a personal capacity to come together and to work through one's own suffering in community in ways that, that create that shift. Um, and I've experienced this in, in several different events and meetings and, and ongoing sort of weekly meetings and, and relationships that I have now in, in a way that I'm really appreciating the challenge, if that makes sense. Yeah, it certainly does. And you got me thinking about a couple of other things as well. But one thing that comes out of both of the explanations you gave is is a reminder that these they're almost archetypal forms, aren't they? When we speak of love or hate, they become, in a sense, something far greater than the word itself, or even our our current cultural usage of it. And it's it's interesting to hear you speaking in this way because it makes me think of you know the fact that we can reclaim words, we can reclaim terminology, and put it to different kinds of use and in a way, what you're talking about is almost uh, a revolutionary act, right? The channeling or the the incarnation of these these kinds of uh, states, not just emotions, but a, a whole bodied stance towards the world can be certainly something revolutionary and potentially 
liberative or liberational uh, for those who are willing to to take on the discomfort that I've mentioned and you've just spoken to. And I guess that leads nicely into the next question. I can't let this go without us moving on, um, before moving on, I should say, which is, Brooke, um, to bring it back to you, and then, and then I'm going to hand it back to Zach again afterwards. You mentioned earlier awakening on several occasions, and I took the term fully liberative from, from one of your web pages. And yeah, you've kind of hinted at a few things there, but I'd like to ask you directly what would that mean? I mean, the word fully before it, maybe you won't hold so tightly to that anymore after what you said before, but I tend to be rather suspicious of, of that kind of language. So let's, let's have a go at uh, constructing, at least in this conversation, an accessible way of thinking about liberation, both in terms of something that might emerge within some kind of practicing life, and then within the context of the current challenges we're facing locally and globally. Yeah, I'm going to give back fully liberative because of our conversation. (laughs) Shall we move on to the next question then? (laughs) Because you're right, because what does that even mean? And that that language, interesting, what an interesting holdover, because I wouldn't be pushing full liberation. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, good. You've restored my faith in you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a little, that's like heretical to say in a a spiritual context i'm aware but i mean yeah i think we need to keep that like that this yeah i guess i want to say the danger of it for everything we've talked about before is like what is this end state there i don't think there is this end state that's free from Mm. total suffering and i'm more in this i align with systems thinking which i think has more purchase in our activist circles Mm -hmm. than just some theology or what have you but I also worry about the the shadow side of believing in full liberation or awakening. And I don't want to, I'm not here to, to put down other spiritual views because I'm also aware that I dance in those worlds too. But there's a shadow side within activist movements for thinking that um, we're going to get somewhere else or, you know, we only have to suffer through this for so long. And then there's some other place we might all end up, or if we practice hard enough, we'll end somewhere else or we'll maybe heaven or the beloved community that there's some way out of here. And I think, think in some way the shadow side of that is that it lets us off the hook and I don't want us to be Mm -hmm. let off the hook for doing the work. Hmm. Yeah I think that's a very important point you make and I agree wholeheartedly and I think the the consequences I would actually put this within the realm of the consequences of the the aftermath in a sense of uh, the the death of God and the coming to terms with the Judeo-Christian traditions of endings of final ending this is something I've been writing about quite a bit in my own work recently, and it popped up in the uh, the podcast discussions that I had with the last two guests. But it's the consequences of letting go of the fantasy of final escape, which is, you know, in a sense, a kind of pure form of transcendence, is is deeply discomforting. Perhaps the work you're doing, in a sense, whether you're saying it that way or not, is a kind of response to that, whether directly or indirectly, of what it means to accept, you know, our material condition and a worldview that gets closer to imminence than transcendence, you know, which is this uh, this return to the body or the physical in a way that's far more holistic and comprehensive than a mere spiritual practice would have us believe. And I think that ties into, obviously, the themes of, of social justice for those we don't see, who live in parts of the world that are hidden from us, but also in terms of, of looking at nature more fully and seeing what it means for animal species to be fucked over, if I can use a gross term at this moment. So 
What about you, Zach? I mean, what are you currently thinking about this whole idea of, of liberation and freedom and awakening and enlightenment as a real potpourri of, well, of problematic historical baggage in one way? Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts? Sure. I mean, I just briefly, I guess, um, recall also the conversation you and I had around in the beginning of that podcast, this uh, sort of dialectic between the transcendence and imminence. And so mm. for those who weren't familiar about my background or that podcast, um, I'm coming also like Brooke sort of and yourself, many of your listeners, uh, out of a contemplative and often very Buddhist context and into um, what I feel to be a much more generative space in between. In between Buddhist contemplative space, other spiritual traditions, multi-faith, what Brooke also mentions, uh, systems thinking, uh, ecology, and, and different, as you would call, sort of great feast of knowledge, different different disciplines, different approaches to understanding uh, our place in the world. Um, but the question you pose about sort of transcendence is, is one that I also don't fully identify with, and at the same time... Um, want to maintain the, the tension, as I said in the earlier podcast, between mm. transcendence and imminence. So my own background is also as a, a philosopher within the process relational tradition. Uh, so also relational, this word that you ask uh, has a, a particular meaning also for me and my own spiritual um, understanding of my place in the world. Um, but how I understand relationships is, I guess, using sort of technical, more philosophical terminology, if you'll excuse me, um, it's a, a differentiated relation. Uh, in the sense that it maintains both identity, difference, um, and a sort of relationship or connection to something greater. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not a full subsumption into that something greater uh, that you would find, as you said, in sort of Christian theological traditions in, in some cases, or, or even Buddhist um, notions of full enlightenment and full Buddhahood. Um, and I'm really interested in that because it's just my understanding of the world. Um, over over years of exploration, is that these these things, the embodiment that you mentioned, are always in connection to some capacity for transcendence or for, let's just say, change, for, for a sort of movement, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'm just, I'm sitting with that um, in my practice and, and also in all the work that I do. It's, it's almost the sort of uh, fundament, the sort of foundation of, of all the different projects that I do is trying to sit in that tension. And I guess relating that to your question about, let's say, nature, I mean, let's just take it in, in that direction now, since it, it seems we're sort of transitioning. Nature in itself has its own tradition, um, like various religions and philosophies, of a move towards transcendence. And if uh, you recall, for instance, the transcendentalists and the romantics who were uh, responding to sort of enlightened scientific thought at the time, they uphold, upheld sort of notions of nature with a big N um, that, that really were about subsuming one in relationship to something greater. Um, which I find highly problematic because it was also tied up with the whole history of racism and a whole history of white supremacy and a whole history of, of sort of um, emphasizing one particular aspect of the human experience to the exclusion of other aspects of the human experience. And also seeing nature as somehow um, just pure wilderness, just pristine, untouched wilderness that was, that was somehow dualistically separate from, uh, distinct from. Uh, everyday life in the city or anything else. So those notions of nature that also the modern environmental movement in some cases has inherited are just as deeply problematic mm -hmm. as notions mm -hmm. of God or transcendence or full enlightenment, mm -hmm. um, and often for some similar reasons. Um, but there, again, there, there are other ways to understand nature, and sort of that's what I'm trying to flesh out too, uh, which I can mm. speak more of, but maybe you want to, I'll pause here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have two more things to, to ask. 
I guess I would say perhaps you're carrying out part of that kind of practice which I suggested before, which is this reclaiming terminology and therefore reclaiming concepts and therefore shifting the kind of relationship that might be possible with the heritage of these ideas that are handed down to us, whether through Buddhism or the Western philosophical tradition or something else. One of the reasons I speak so often critically of the concept of transcendence is it goes back to that point about what Nietzsche kind of brought on, which is, you know, what, what does it mean to actually come to terms with the real consequences of, of severing, in a sense, our relationship with the Judeo-Islamic uh, Christian tradition? And on the one hand, I don't think that's fully possible, but I think what we get if we start to study history after that kind of thought is that this transcendence is so old and it's so deep in so many cultures, not just the British and American cultures, obviously, that it has a way of seeping into so much of what we do instinctively. Uh, the observation you made about the environmental movement, I, I've had conversations about that before with other environmentalists, so I, I fully agree with you, and I think it's fundamental for a more realistic uh, evaluation of what can be done by environmental movements, but also governments in our exact moment, to, to have a more realistic and uh, material and imminent perception of, of what the world and nature actually means and actually is transcendence. It's got so much baggage that it's difficult in public discourse to be able to continue to make use of it without, without mentioning its problems. So the fact that you also rephrased it as change, I mean, I can get on board with as well. And if I was to bring this back to the point that Brooke was making before, the observation that there is no true essential separate self is certainly one I think we can all get on board with quite easily. But in that shift towards togetherness and relationality, there is, let's say, a psychological experience of individuality and autonomy that needs to be maintained. <laughs> we don't want to go too far towards the relational and the togetherness because, you know, we're going to just end up going to another extreme, right, and, and losing too much in the process. So I think that's a very, very interesting tension. One of the challenges that the social justice work brings up, both in its terminology and its desires and the way it's expressed in popular culture, is that a lot of people, not just on the right, but I mean, people more generally, feel a sort of instinctual threat, not only to their white privilege or their male privilege or whatever it is that might be critiqued by those pushing activism more forcefully. Far bigger than that, there's a sort of underlying collective discomfort about, you know, what do I do with my experience of selfhood and my experience of being me as we go through this massive kind of change? And because it's largely unconscious, I think it does give rise to all sorts of pushback and, let's say, reactionary behavior. We, in a way, just as you were saying, Zach, with transcendence, we have to do something with it, and it does have a role or attention. The movement towards healing and activity or political engagement must bring along that individual self, which, of course, psychologically speaking, desires healing, desires love, and desires participation too. I've chucked quite a few points in there. Do either of you want to respond to any of that? Do you have any thoughts that are, are bubbling up? You know, I, I always appreciate coming on because also you, you provoke, I think, in all the right ways. Because all of these, all of these concepts need to be interrogated, all these ideas need to be interrogated, um, including uh, relationality. And even though I'm, I'm sort of placing myself within that camp, there is a lot of bad work that orbits around this field of relationality. And I think, as you sort of suggested, um, there's there's always a reaction against. Um, and, I, and I'm always really wary about that. And I think there's increasingly a turn towards relationality. You see it sort of within my field of, of philosophy. 
turn towards relational ontologies, a turn towards speculative realism, a turn towards uh, just the ontological shift is, is what people are calling it within all different disciplines, anthropology, um, sociology, what have you, as a reaction against the sort of positivistic in, inheritance um, of the 20th century. And, and having said that, that, that's just philosophy. You know, I think in, in all manner of fields, people are feeling a sense of disconnection, a sense of um, a lack of social fabric, a sort of sense of isolation, of alienation. Uh, and this is, this is a very modern story, as you said, too. So being that what it is, um, I think a lot of people turn towards relationality with also a superficial understanding of, of what the word means. And I think it's in some people's understanding, just a sense of connection, of interrelatedness, of sort of oneness, um, and, and it doesn't go deeper than that. Um, and that's why, for myself, I sort of really uh, emphasize this term differentiated relational uh, in the sense that there, there, is, there is this tension, I was saying, between the imminent and the transcendent or the individual and the collective that is always a tension that's neither subsuming the other in a way that is just so essential, I think, um, to even start a conversation that I would be, for instance, interested in having. Um, because if it's all just about oneness then, and then we turn towards that, the reaction is going to be there, as you said, because the individual isn't respected within that sort of soup, right? Mm. And also at the same time that you're turning towards the oneness, you're really by, you have the tendency perhaps to bypass um, individual transformation, healing, um, neuro neuroticism, what, what have you, in this sort of collective identity. Um, and you also see that now in, in a lot of uh, tribalistic reactionary movements, right? In the sort of like, oh, no, my white male privilege is being tested. Let me turn to all the white males around me or those who identify with white male privilege and create this collective identity that then protects what I don't want to be fundamentally challenged. And so I really think the sense of relationality and love that I'm interested in and Brooke is interested in is a sense of, being an individual in relationship in ways that you can never separate the two. And that's the also non-dual understanding that we're talking about. It's not just a subsuming individual identity within oneness. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Totally. Like we're not separate, but we're also not one. And I'm thinking of that Audre Lorde quote, without community, there's no liberation. But community must not mean a shedding of our differences, nor the pathetic pretense that these differences do not exist. Mm. And I think that's some edge work, right? Like, how do we work on inclusion, sense of belonging and welcome, and that this was created, not just that people are welcome, but created for everyone in mind, and at the same time, processes that also facilitate and support diversity. So there's belonging and connection, but there's also diversity of expression and that equity in, ensures that we're correcting for inequitable processes that have influenced who's gotten what they need historically and who hasn't and how do we tend to that, but how do we create the conditions where there's both a sense of welcome and also this sense of not only survival, but freedom of becoming who you are to be, need to be, we're meant to be. You know, what are our gifts or service to the world in that way? It's definitely interesting. And I, I can't help but think this theme of complexity returns, which is a theme I tackled in the political turn, which is, you know, we inevitably end up with the pull towards simplicity in how we 
try to to understand and um, enunciate and elaborate the, the kind of concepts we're playing around with and the kind of drives that we're we're possessed by or, or attracted towards. And when you talk about diversity, for example, again, this is something I spoke with um, Sam Mickey about. The problem with these words when they get overused is they often lose the power that they originally held to kind of wake people up to some kind of, of serious reflection or analysis. Multiplicity is a word that, that could be useful at this mm. stage as well, right? You know, because mm-hmm. one of the limits of non-dualism and the way it's both understood conceptually at a sort of, I don't want to say a pop cultural level, but let's say at a, a relatively superficial level is we still end up with a dichotomy and we still end up with two. And diversity as multiplicity is a very interesting way of thinking about mm. identity within the world, because then it's not just one and, and one as two. Mm-hmm. Yes, which one yes, must yes. replace the other, right? Or one and one becomes two. It's like, no, 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 we, we could actually be on a, a wheel in which there are at least nine different directions we could take to understanding what it means to be human. And individuality is one, togetherness is another, a physical biological being is another, a socially constructed being is another. I mean, that's the whole notion of the Great Feast and why I love it so much is it, it allows for that kind of multidimensional thinking <laughs> without it sort of dissipating into a kind of new age, everything is wonderful and not really engaged significantly with anything. My sense is from speaking to both of you that that's something that could work for you two too, right? Yes. Yeah. Another way to describe this real briefly for your listeners is to consider you were mentioning notions of self and selfhood and how much those are challenged in this very challenging time. And yet, how can we stay with that experience of being a self? Deleuze, one of my favorite French philosophers, speaks of the singularity and how, how, how there are events, that's the fundament of reality, and that those are singularities, but that in each of those, there's a multitude. So that I am a singularity and I contain multitudes. And so in the context of healing that we were speaking of before, what if we really took that perspective and, and considered my experience as a unique experience? And yet, in order for me to heal white suprem- from white supremacy, toxic masculinity, from climate injustice, what have you, one has to consider oneself as also a multitude in the sense that I have internalized ways of relating to myself and to this world and to others that are dependent on, as you said, socially constructed realities, ways of thinking, concepts that are both also not just in the head, but embodied and extended in relationships. What if you then also consider the social systems that are enforcing and reinforcing these feedback patterns and loops? Um, And, you know, what if you just considered a singularity in terms of this multitude, this multiplicity that also co-constitutes the singularity? Hello, it's me again. And yes, I know it's rather rude to interrupt this lovely conversation that you've given up your time to listen to, but I kind of have to. You may have noticed the traditional introduction for the podcast was missing today. That's because I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. You may also have noticed I wasn't plugging my coaching business either. Now, that's very bad of me. And in fact, I'm not a very good capitalist. It just seems to me that trying to get people to pay money for things is really the wrong approach. People should choose to do so and be free to do so as well. Now, I've got a new website. If you follow the Facebook page or Twitter feed, you probably know about that. Now, I do have a coaching business and I have mentioned it before. I see it really as a as-needed come-along. I have a regular job teaching, which some of you may know. 
and that allows me to do things like this podcast and the coaching and the workshops I do as well in a way that's not really dependent on people coughing up cash. It also means that those poor students who don't have a dime to rub together or, well, those people who are living on benefits or whatnot or the increasing number of people on zero contract hours and that kind of nefarious business arrangement can actually come along and get some insight, some teaching or whatever they need. So Coaching O'Connell is now integrated into the site. You can have a look at what I do if you're interested. If you think about the themes I'm covering in this podcast, those are the kinds of things I tend to help people along with. And since this is the practice season, I should mention that I'm not a Buddhist teacher, wouldn't claim to be one as such, but I do use Buddhist materials, including meditation. So if you're looking for somebody to work with that kind of stuff, to find a practicing life that you can use to go forwards, that doesn't require you to give up your intellect, give up your autonomy, and start slipping back into some of the the fantasies and dysfunctional characteristics of contemporary spirituality and Buddhism that we've addressed on this podcast, you might want to get in touch. I tend to draw on post-traditional, non-Buddhist style approaches, But if you would like to review what it means to even conceptualize something like meditation or practice or compassion or awakening in a context in which we can be critical together and explore very much in a 21st century set of lenses, then that's the kind of thing I'm up to. And if you're interested, take a look at the website. Yeah, nice. Very nice. I like that. It's a good way of saying it and thinking about it. Yeah. I think there's something incredibly impoverished about a lot of the the current discourse we have about many of the themes we're talking about today. This sim- very simple shift at the end of the day to away from singularities or dichotomies or dualisms towards multiplicity, it kind of just opens up the entire space of discourse that would also help us to some degree with the kind of polarization we're seeing, not just in pop culture and on Twitter, but, you know, in the, the political actions unfolding across Europe and in the States and elsewhere. And it's it's like, you know, what would allow us or enable us all to raise our game, both in terms of intellectual beings, but feeling beings mm-hmm. towards a multiplicity in which there are so many more possibilities. I don't know about you guys, I'm just so tired of hearing about in current economic discourse, it's still bogged down by like, is it capitalism or is it communism? And it's like, really? Mm-hmm. Can't mm-hmm. we like imagine <laughs> <Right>. something <laughs> beyond those two already? And this is a, maybe a small point, but I'm, I know we're countering kind of traditions of hyper-rationalism and intellectualism, and that's where I think more recent movements of reclaiming feeling or the emotional life or ways of being in our bodies are really important and critical. But there's a kind of shadow trend emerging within some social justice circles, and there's a kind of anti-intellectualism emerging within those traditions that I'm really right, worried about. Yeah, and yeah. it's, it, yeah, because intellectualism is now conflated with kinds of elitism, and I'm aware of the ways that can happen. But there's a sense of like, this is not about next best philosophy or theory. It's about practice. It's about transforming ways of being. And it's like, yes, and we're losing our capacity to think. It's literally being educated out of us, not by mm-hmm. accident. And we need ways of reclaiming what else is possible here is actually part of our projects. And so I'm worried about that, that mm-hmm. shadow within some of the movements that I see. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Because, you know, in a polarized time, I mean, you, you get to say that, Brooke, but <laughs> us white males over here may not do. I'm just kidding, of course. <laughs> 
I can't help but think that that's still, and I hate to repeat this, I think that's still part of the heritage of American anti-intellectualism more broadly. Which is terrifying, yes. God damn it, yes. It's not just, you know, it's not just um, current POTUS. Is that what you call him, POTUS? Yeah, yeah President of the United States. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, a tag. He probably goes around spraying it around the, uh, the White House. But yeah, I think one of the problems with that is that it seeps out into my own country of origin, which is England, and, and then it seeps into the rest of Europe. When it comes to something like the wave of anti-intellectualism, we do actually need to be quite combative and, and really push back against it as we do what you two are both clearly doing, which is, is thinking afresh this whole sense of the emotional identity and emotional togetherness and, and what it would be, not just to heal, I think, but maybe a word we haven't used yet, which is maturity. When people talk about stoicism or robustness or the ability to withstand the terror of facing, you know, potential mass decline, to me, it's like, well, maybe that's not the point, mm-hmm. right? You know, we actually do have to experience that stuff, but without it destroying us and annihilating us. And I mm. think that part of that is the process of maturing emotionally into adulthood in a way that allows us to not just manage, not just cope, but actually use it as a liberational force. The kind of Buddhism that I still find most interesting, which is Tantra, mm-hmm. also because it resonates with some of the shamanic worlds I've journeyed in over the years, which see, mm-hmm. you know, emotional mm-hmm. emotionality as, as life force, right, as passion. Yeah. But also, and this is the question I want to get to next, the dark stuff that all of us have to contend with that often gets left out of both spiritual practice and discourse around community and love. Brooke, another word that you mention, actually both of you do, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, in a piece of writing that you put together for Open Democracy, is the word hope. Mm-hmm. I simultaneously love the word hope, but I also <laughs> <laughs> recognize, recognize that it can be deeply problematic. It can be a kind of infantile desire or a kind of dysfunctional holding out for, as you were saying before, a happy ever after, or, or I don't know, maybe, maybe if we're lucky, mm-hmm. we'll just kind of, we, we won't have to face that thing after all. I imagine, based on our discussion so far, you're not using hope in that way. But I'll give you a quick definition from an American friend of mine who's very, very active in the environmental movement. It's quite simple, but she came up with this idea. She said, look, it should be hope without any outcome. It should be hope without any expectation. Hope should be, like you were saying before, Brooke, a stance to which we face the world. So what do you think about that? And what else would you say about hope? Absolutely. I mean, to borrow again the work of Ethic of Risk from womanist thinkers, we're, I think the heart of spiritual practice is learning to act without any expectation of return or without any attachment to outcome. So we still show up, we still love, we still care knowing if we're being hyper-rational that we probably won't see the fruits of our labor maybe even in our lifetime and we show up anyway. And there's a kind of hope in that that I think is not the super optimistic kind like it's all going to get better or the arc of the universe is long but it bends toward justice. Mm -hmm. But rather it's saying change is inevitable. Like that is the only constant that we maybe can all agree upon or many of us could agree upon. We have no idea what will happen and we keep showing up anyway. And just because we become, we're working to be good or just because working toward justice doesn't mean it will happen, but we keep working anyway. And there's a kind of hope in that. I think it's like a wise hope in a way. It's saying like, we're not condemning ourselves to believe we're all going to die and it's all going to get worse or nothing will change. (laughs) But we're also not condemning ourselves to like buy into some fairy tale, like no matter what we do, we're all going to be saved somehow in the end. It's like it's it's holding both of those like both possibilities are actually very alive 
And I think that requires a kind of complexity capacity to come back to your word maturity and ability to hold multiple possibilities, multiple realities, multiple outcomes, and we still show up. And frankly, I don't want the world to work out the way I can envision it right now. Like, I think this is an emergent co-creative process. And Mm -mm. I frankly wouldn't hand that like gift to anybody to make the world for us or to like figure Mm. out where we're all headed. Like, I think this is something we all can't even intuit yet in a way. Like we are trying to work ourselves into intuiting that together. And that also is, that's like creative hope in a way. Mm. Yeah, the other word that comes to mind is commitment, right? And I think that's one of the the great challenges for all of us is to what degree can we commit to these stances and these projects in a way that actually leads to effective action? And yeah. yeah. To be honest, I have to wake up and commit every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to wake up every day and there's a part of me that thinks like, really, what is the point? Like, couldn't I just go to the beach somewhere? Like, <laughs> couldn't we just disappear? I mean, what is the point? And I have to, I mean, it's not a whole big project. I mean, my life is already kind of in this direction. So it's just, but it's a recommitment. Like this is worth it. And these are my priorities and these are my intentions and these are my aspirations. But I have to, I have to reorient to that as a practice. It's not Mm. just something that runs through my blood in a way, you know? Yeah. One other thing that might link us very nicely to I guess what is the second part of this conversation, which is going to move towards ecology. This word caring that you use quite a bit is obviously in the name of this project you've begun. But I can't help but think that that actually could be a a key that would help us somewhat with the the unnecessary tension and polarization between the ideals of progress and conservation. If we look at a lot of what I would consider to be wasted time in in the political sphere is what we would usually term as a sort of left-right divide. When you speak about many of the themes that we've been discussing today, they they still often get left in the realm of, let's say, the left. It's often left as as something that's inherently liberal, progressive, or on on that side of the fence. And there was a conversation I was listening to last month, and I think it was in a debate that was taking place on BBC Radio. But there was one chap on there whose name I completely forget, as always. But he was saying that one of the keys to bringing conservatives, and I don't mean, you know, these far-right idiots or the idiocy of Trump or new wave nationalists, but just your run-of-the-mill right-wing conservatives on board with the kind of environmental project that we all obviously need to get on board with, is recasting the sense of conservation in a way that would be more acceptable to them so that they can actually start to realize that environmental activism, caring for more members of a population and so forth, is actually an act of conservation, uh, of protecting our history, and of preserving the best of what they've known so far. And when you talk about caring, I think another way of understanding it, and I think this would resonate with much of what you've said today, is responsibility. Again, like maturity, responsibility is a word that's been almost taboo on the left. And I think it's a term that we have to recontend ourselves with. But to me, when you speak about caring, if I think about my role as a father, or as a teacher, inherent to that is commitment and responsibility towards not just showing up, engaging mentally, engaging emotionally, engaging physically, and engaging in that relationality that you spoke of, but also finding a greater depth of all of those within my relationship to the people who are immediately part of my life. And that obviously includes the environment and the society around me. How do you feel about that word responsibility? Would you agree with that analysis? 
or would you see it as problematic? So I, I see it as both, right? Um, Matthew, res- responsibility is, is needed. And also I think there are different ways to understand the term. <laughs> sort of to pull out a common thread uh, from this whole conversation. The kind of problematic uh, sense of responsibility, I think, comes from the sense of, of actually identity in, in a way that's not um, based on consent. Uh, a particular understanding of what I need to do in any given situation that isn't invited uh, by those affected, by those um, involved in uh, whatever situation you're engaged in. And that's, be- that's a sort of sense of identity that's pretty bounded and also that's um, in service to, but also with power over, uh, not power with. And I see that as problematic. But like with other terms like love, want to reappropriate this term because I see the value in it. And so what I've, I wrote an article with Ed Ning about a year or two ago on the sense of response ability with a hyphen in the middle in the mm-hmm. sense of a capacity or ability to respond. Mm-hmm. So it's much more situational. It's much more dynamic. It understands that we are, as I said before, identities in relationship to each other. So that for me actually to be responsible, I cannot come in with a preset notion of what needs to happen based on my own understanding of the world, but rather I need to be radically open to whatever wants to emerge and also to whoever's in the room, you know, so that I practice deep listening, have a sense of humility, and then engage in a genuine dialogue about what needs to happen given my capacities. And so it it flips it on its head, this notion of responsibility. And it also, I think, requires not just a sense of humility, but also a a deepening of, of my capacity to respond, which is quite quite a tall order because it, again, engages my full being, my full body, my, my psychosocial and spiritual capacity to be present, as you said, Matthew, to show up whatever is happening in my burning world, right? <laughs> um, so that, I think, is really helpful, and that is what I want to develop. Mm-mm. You were part of a retreat at the Ratna Ling Retreat Center in the States in August this year on socially engaged contemplation. And you had an interesting question that was driving the whole thing, which was, how can we integrate psycho-spiritual and societal transformations towards sustainability? And assuming you've got all the answers to that question already, right? So (laughs) what's the big answer that comes out or came out of that event, was there a key insight that emerged from that retreat for you that either you hadn't thought about so much or or hadn't realized to the extent that you had by the time that event was over? Good question. Um, hmm. Yeah, well, I guess it's, it's a lesson that I, I'm not just taking from that event, but also I, I had another event um, last week in sort of the southern part of Germany and Bavaria um, with an amazing group of people. And both, both events combined um, amazing groups of people on sort of hot topics. But I thought in both cases, what I learned the most was how difficult it is to create an atmosphere in a container that allows for the sort of deepest possibility, the deepest potential within the group to emerge because there was such a rich group of of people with um, an embodied wisdom and experience that that could have been shared, I think, in, in even more of a powerful way. But in 
the end of either event was apparent could not um, actually emerge um, in the deepest possible way precisely because um, when discussing such deep topics as the sort of connection of psycho-spiritual and, and societal transformation, um, a lot of stuff comes up. It's like really messy work. It's mm-hmm. really messy. And, you know, it, it's just, I think, um, important to appreciate how difficult um, it is to do that work with integrity um, with respect to shining a light on everybody's stuff and dealing with it in an effective way, a way that you negotiate, to use your word before, the the different dynamics and the different internalized patterns and and shadow work that's just Mm -hmm. all coming out in a sort of space that um, in some ways creates a lot of limits to the, the sort of deeper, fuller potential that I that I intuit and that I know could arrive, but simply can't because it's so difficult in the span of two or three days, and which is typically how these events run, with a group of people who you know of but aren't deeply you know, close to in the sense that you would be with your family or friends. To do that deep work um, because so much stuff is unearthed. Um, and uh, the relationship dynamics, I think, um, at, at a certain point take over. So it's really, it's becoming apparent to me how, how it really requires really strong facilitation and a team of facilitators who have an incredible capacity through their own spiritual practice and their own experience doing these kinds of meetings to, to provide that so that the people in the room at least can reach that deeper potential. And that was, yeah, that, at Ratnaling, I experienced something similar where we could have, I think, gone deeper than we did. And yet, um, I was happy with the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's just, yeah, for, the, for those reasons um, of, of doing that deeper work where so much stuff comes up and you have to almost expect it. And then just, I think that's where your spiritual training comes in. Um, is, is being responsible, like I said before, the ability to respond mm-hmm. to situational awareness and, mm-hmm. and issues and dynamics. Yeah, a lot of uh, a leadership ability as well, right? And the ability to negotiate, <laughs> you know, how to manage group dynamics. It's uh, mm. What came to my mind as you were speaking is I do kind of feel like that we're in a new phase in which there is uh, an interesting emergent potential taking place. And Part of an indication of that is this um, greater openness towards a critical evaluation of the whole concept of spirituality and transformation and so forth. But it's also the, 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 say, the narrowing of the divide between the intellectual, to use your word, the spiritual, and the transformational. And I think it's relatively new ground. Religion has been involved in the running of society and intellectual pursuits and culture for, for thousands of years, of course. But I think in terms of what we're living with now, which kind of feels quite modern too, right? The idea of the spiritual, the idea of Buddhism we have, it is run through with themes of modernity. And of course, coming out of the last century with the, the, the fact that we've had to come to terms with this over-focus on the individual, this kind of ground that you're operating in, both of you, of, of honoring emotionality, right? Of honoring what you've defined as the spiritual and the societal, but also bringing in research, bringing in intellectual culture, bringing in great thinkers of our time, both present and past, is very much new ground. And I, I, I think a lot of people are just not prepared for it. And I think you're mm-hmm. right, Zach, that it's this, this concept of responsibility of showing up is really going to help you along with that. People 
ourselves included, are, are learning, and that this is going to be an ongoing learning process. Um, but mm. fortunately, there are a lot of great tools out there if people are willing to embrace them. I'd like to lead on into the article that both of you wrote to bring you both back into the conversation for Open Democracy. And I recommend that listeners go and take a look. It was, uh, it was a good read. It's very new. It's from August. And it's called Responding with Love to a Civilization in Crisis. And uh, if we had a bit more time, I'd like to play a game in which uh, I would guess who wrote which bit. But <laughs> we're not going to do that. Um, I liked it. I liked the article and I found it interesting. And I found that you, you were explicit enough in your terms and your concepts that made it accessible to the more cynical listener. So if you are one of those folks who sits, still sits uncomfortably with the notion of love, of spirituality, go along and read it. You won't be disappointed and you'll find your intellectual needs met to some degree, I'm sure. Now, two things. The first one is that the article reminded me of a book that I think you and I spoke about called The Meaning of the 21st Century by James Martin. Uh, Brooke, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it talks about this metaphor of a bottleneck that we're racing towards. It was written right at the end of the last century and published at the beginning of our current century. And he was talking really about a lot of the stuff that you guys cover in that article. And he was arguing for both the local, national and global need to make significant change in order for us to go one way rather than the other. Those two ways are something that you speak about in this text. They are the great transition and the great unraveling. Perhaps, uh, Brooke, you could start with this one. What would be a meaningful way of understanding the difference between the great unraveling and the great transition? And also, what's the intention behind that article? And what would you hope that it would uh, inform readers about? Right. I think a number of thinkers like Joanna Macy and others have been writing for quite some time about the almost choice point that we're facing in terms of our civilization and what's next for us. And that there seems to be a potential for what she and others have termed the great turning or the great transformation, a chance for us really to rise to the challenges of our time and to advance our consciousness, advance our collective ways of thinking and being together in space. And that there have been so many movements for so long that have been pushing us forward in that direction. And folks like Joanna Macy and others have been calling us into that future to say that it's possible and we need all hands on deck for that work and that it's possible for us to realize the beloved community or possible for us to realize a more just, caring society or civilization. And folks, on the other hand, if we place these ideas along a spectrum with the great turning or transformation at one end, like you might think of as positive change, on the other end of the spectrum, we have this sense that things are going downhill and we have very little chance, if any chance at all, to write the course of history and to face and respond effectively enough to the climate crisis, the ecological crisis and other crises of justice in the world. And so the best we can do really is just prepare for a certain kind of end of times. And from our view, for Zach and I, I think both of us can embrace both of those positions on the spectrum mm. um, with somewhat equal measure. The mm. sense that there's a deep part of me that says like, of course, we can keep going and we might be on the verge of some deeper learning or deeper kinds of awakening. But on the other hand, the data is pretty clear. Um, unless we really um, step it up like yesterday, um, we're on track for unbelievable kinds of destruction. 
And I think both of those stances require that no matter what happens, we continue to deepen in capacities of love, care, insight. We continue to learn. We continue to try to organize. We continue to try to wake up. Because if we're on track for the great turning, I mean, what else is there to do? This is kind of like Pascal's wager. But even if we're on track for, the, for a form of great destruction or like end of days, we still need care. Like we will very likely start to see communities of people. We're already seeing this. Communities of people literally dying off. We will start to be fighting more and more so over natural resources. Like all of our shadow or dark instincts as human beings will be turned on in this end of day scenario. And we're going to need each other to kind of ease our way into that as much as possible. And that might sound actually ridiculous, but I think both of those actually require a kind of spiritual training and spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And that connects us back to that conversation on hope. And that is like, we don't know which is possible, but we continue preparing for both in line with this deep commitment to each other and to the world in that way. Yeah, nicely said. And it's, I think that's a very mature and <laughs> responsible way of approaching it all. As you said, this really is the, the only game in town. And if we're not all engaged in this kind of practice, what are we doing? In a sense, I guess we're just kind of burying our head in the sand. Part of what you were saying there made me think about the role or duty we have to the earth and to the rest of the members of our human species, which is that we have to feed something, right, with our actions, with our imagination, with our conversations and with our daily choices. And I would agree with you fully that um, we need to feed a vision at least of the potential of transformation taking place rather than just endless destruction. Um we probably all need to be a bit careful about this. I mean, you said the end of days, which I think is a very dramatic metaphor, but again, it's uh, that shadow (laughs) side of the great transition to the heavenly realm, right, that we were critiquing before. It would almost be easier for most folks to accept total destruction than just this continuous ongoing degradation of the good things in life, right? I mean, that's one of those, those games we play with ourselves as well. And I can't help but think some of these self-destructive behaviors of people at the very top of the pyramid, um, I think these guys are kind of entertaining that fantasy at this point. Well, Mm -hmm. fuck it. We've Mm -hmm. got all the money. We've got all the goods. I don't even know if they're maintaining the idea that they can survive it anymore. They're just, let's burn this shit to the ground, but at least we're going to be drinking cognac and riding a yacht somewhere and screw the rest of you. And I think the unbearableness of all this, to, to use a term that one of our past guests came up with, that unbearableness of it all is actually to stop and say, no, it's actually not going to be like that either. It's just going to be like being at the dentist with the drill on nonstop and getting louder and more painful and that raw nerve not going anywhere. That actually brings us back to a metaphor from Buddhism that we can take, which is samsara, you know, this whole concept of the cyclical ongoing, not stopping, but ongoing nature of suffering and dissatisfaction and discomfort and ignorance. And The way I speak about this on a good day is I feel that part of my job as an adult and as a parent, as a friend, is to to encourage a vision of the world that says this is possible without naivety. Mm -hmm. And that's part of my role in the world because I can do it because I'm psychologically and emotionally stable enough to do it. And because I also believe it. I mean, I don't don't see what else there is to do. So I don't know if that resonates with with you guys and if that's something you get on board with. I, I just want to affirm and deepen the comments both of you made in the sense that for me, I think the problem that we 
notice before the we wrote the article and, and something we were responding to is that people, I think there's two things that, that uh, two tendencies that we see is one that people project this out. Um, you know, they, they tend to project climate change and, and environmental destruction and everything else also out uh, into the future also. And they, and they, they don't see it in, in their lived experience. Um, and frankly, that um, takes quite a lot of privilege, I think, to, to be able to even do that, um, to just conceptually understand climate change as something that's happening in the future and not the present. Mm -hmm. um, but then they, they put these two, they sort of dichotomize the two future scenarios, if you will, in the way that we described um, as also being somehow dis, um, separate and that e either we will go down this road and things will, you know, things will be okay. Things will mm -hmm. transform pos in a positive direction in the future, right, from now until just like 50 years or something. Mm -hmm. Or uh, we will just be living in this absurd dystopia climate collapse and social collapse and everything else. And I think in either of these tendencies, there's a problem. I think my sense, and this is why I think partly we wrote the article, was that there were growing communities of people who wanted to uh, see the problems as distant from their lived embodied experience. Um, mm -hmm. And then also they wanted to split the reality into two different realities. And my understanding is that this is already happening now. And that both of these things, as Brooke said, are also um, both latent potentials and already existing realities. That we have extreme versions of dystopias that um, mm -hmm. many, many people are already experiencing and that are knocking at our doorsteps. And we also have these amazing, shining, beautiful examples of sort of concrete, imminent utopias and ways of relating and living that are also flourishing in different parts of the globe. And I think it's really important, like I said in the earlier part of the conversation, to hold the tension between these two realities in the present and the future. And that the future is already in the present. And the more and more we take this active stance towards hope, not as hope is an image of the future that is somehow static, that is sort of a, a heavenly image of something, an, an escape from this reality to something better. But rather, we take an active stance towards hope that's moving as much as we can, just pushing the needle as, as much, you know, a little bit at a time towards the more positive version of the great transformation, even as we attune with all of our body and felt sense into the lived reality of dystopia, mm. that is the kind of work that, that I think we need to do. Mm -mm. Yeah, agreed. Sounds, sounds good. Brooke, did you, did you want to add something? Well, just that what you said earlier, Matthew, I think is so insightful that this sense that even those at the top, like we're playing this game of, of escapism mm. because we actually can't bear with reality as it is. And it's like we're willing to like, this is a bad metaphor, but like to even like go so far as like push the red button or like start war or do anything just to get out of this sense of dealing with reality as it is. Mm -hmm. And that I think goes all the way down, right? So how do we develop the capacity to be with what is? Because even in the great transformation, this goes back to our earlier discussion, there's no like total out of pain, of change, of transformation. We're going to grapple with new challenges, even if that pathway unfolds. And that finding ways to address that deep psychological need to find ways of being with what is or to address the like loophole or the shadow of escapism or trying to get out, I think is critical to all of our projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not easy, right? <laughs> you know, it's not easy for us who are, are enticed by these ways of living and uh, are deeply motivated to engage in these kinds of practice in our own lives or professionally, mm -hmm. as the two of you are. Mm -hmm. And uh, the opportunities for despair are many, but, uh, but not helpful. <laughs> not helpful at all. Um, there are a couple of, of large-scale psychological problems that we face. I mean, you, you spoke about privilege there, Zach, but I, I would suggest there's also something else going on, which is that we are fundamentally creatures of habit. And if we take an example like North Korea, which is to go back to what the two of you are saying right now, I mean, if that's not a, a living dystopian reality, I don't know what is. And it's amazing the capacity for human beings to both get used to almost anything, but also to normalize and to seek the normalization of events. That's something as well that's a huge challenge in the kind of work you're doing, which is how do we ourselves and the groups we're working with or the kind of uh, work we're producing in terms of writing or a podcast encourage or support or educate all of ourselves about facing the unknown, which seems to be one of the deepest and most profound fears that all human beings face. In response to that, the ability to normalize anything is, is incredible, incredible. And mm. I also think the other issue we, we, we have, collectively speaking as well, for those who, who are involved in education, is just this general um, resistance to complexity, even amongst mm -hmm. intellectual people or people who are deeply engaged with exploring the world of the emotions or consciousness. These seem to be two primary reactive patterns that we have as a species, and I think they're getting in the way of a lot of the kind of good work you guys seem to be attempting to bring about. So I like the way you're, you're, you're speaking about acknowledging the coexistence of what are, in a sense, two um, archetypal images, right, of our present and future, the great unraveling and the great transition. I like the terminology there because it's a movement away from, again, as you said before, dystopia or utopia, which are two terms that are perhaps not so helpful anymore unless we're critiquing them. I'd like to read one bit from the text, which sums up part of what we've just been saying. You write in your piece the following, often responses to collapse are fractured along single issues, narrow theories of change, disciplinary boundaries, national borders, and in some cases identity politics. This fracturing reveals a deeper problem, a crisis of perception about the nature of human beings and our relationship to each other in the world. Now, I think that's fantastic, and I think that's a nice segue to something else that you did relatively recently, Zach, which was a piece in which you were talking about your event, I guess one of the events you've just mentioned, um, talking about ontology, right, and the, the role of ontology <clears throat> as being fundamental um, we might also, to use a bit of a, a Buddhist-style concept, the kind of ground on which much of this activism and work and, and experience of selfhood operates, right? Mm. Would you like to speak to that a little bit? And how are you getting on in your own thought about the role of ontology? And, and where do you see yourself heading with it in an attempt to, well, to help, I guess, really people get beyond some of these dichotomies mm. we've been discussing today and these limitations? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, so leading back to also the comment of my learnings um, to, the, to the two prior events, and one is the one you just mentioned on ontologies, I think the, the reason why it was so difficult also is that we were dealing with deeply ontological issues. And that's ontology is a word that comes from philosophy, which, which may be sort of uh, non-intuitive to some of your listeners, but to just describe it, because everybody has an experience of it, 
it's the study of being and, and what it means to be, just just to be. What are, what are different ways of being, different worldings, different ways to be in the world? Um, and what are the assumptions, the fundamental assumptions that inform that, what it means to be human, what it means to be in the world? How does that happen? How does that work? What, what is the sort of principles behind that? And there have been so many um, traditions, intellectuals, um, you know, theories about, about it, uh, Western, Eastern, Indigenous. Um, and so I'm interested in that material, but I'm also interested in particular traditions that, as I said, sort of focus on a differentiated relational ontology that tries to maintain the tension between identity and relationship. To get back also to your comment of what it takes to be to be in the world in a position of service at this time of crisis, I think what's called for is this understanding of how to be in relationship and also not erasing the differences between those various identities, whether it's doing academic work and understanding how different disciplines can cross-pollinate, but also not be so bounded that the, that the disciplines themselves don't also question and challenge and interrogate interrogate their guiding presumptions and assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just being a human being, what it means to give over oneself to the experience of another and to deeply listen and to the other and to, uh, to retrain oneself's habits, as you said, too, to allow for a kind of negotiation in terms of not just what one's own needs are, but also the needs of another. You know, so I really think this this conversation around relational differential relational ontology is not just a, a technical one or a philosophical one. And it, you know, I'm interested in also translating it in many different contexts so that it sort of gets outside um, the language and, and the terms that could be quite difficult for some people, but which people all have an intuitive felt sense of. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that it's a very generative way to go through a sort of retraining of what it means to be human, to sort of cultivate capacities that are also sometimes not just counterintuitive, but countercultural, and that also the human brain isn't fully equipped for, like you said, our capacity to hold complexity is essential at this moment in history. And yet, I find myself also, like many other human beings, like defaulting to like, yes, no, like, yes, no. What about yes and, you know? I mean, how much can we develop that capacity for complexity, for understanding difference, for for maintaining one's sense of integrity and yet being open to change and being open to others' experience. So it's a really challenging conversation around ontology, but I think it's, as I said, at the fundament of my work, whether it's on the commons, talking about how society could organize itself, or whether it's on spiritual or Buddhist practice and how that engages with these issues of the, of, of the day, like climate change, or whether it's my work on ecological civilization in China, you know, at the bedrock is this relational understanding of myself in relation. Nice. Yeah, very, very good. And I think you've illustrated nicely why it's so important that that uh, we continue to combat that anti-intellectualist uh, strain, which is uh, by now just such a norm across many different areas of, uh, of culture and being promoted by social media as well. That's the other piece, and I'm really glad that uh, this conversation's gone where it's gone, because too often in the past when people speak about nurturing, care, and love, it's always at the sacrifice of the intellectual capacity and elasticity and the capacity to think beyond one's own beliefs, assumptions, and ideas, and uh, it's great to hear both of you thoroughly engaged in, in, in that direction as well. 
Zach, it just sounds like you're reminding listeners that whether we like it or not, you know, everybody is a philosopher to some degree. <laughs> uh, but making it more conscious and, and bringing these questions not only about our emotional selves and our identities, but also about our capacity to come to terms with the insights of philosophy or, or whatever it is, is fundamental to our survival too. That still continues to be one of the missing aspects of a lot of good work that's being done in, in various uh, fields is, is the need to remember that intellectual care <laughs> or intellectual yeah. responsibility is quite different from, you know, cynical uh, intellectualization. Um, we could leave that behind in the last century as well, couldn't we? But we certainly can't go forwards without it if we're going to build visions that feed that transition vision of the world in ways that encompass enough of our collective actions to actually be effective. So good, very good. I mean, that's part of what I've been doing with the podcast, right, is attempting to bring that kind of attention to thought and ideas in a way that's accessible to a general public engaging deeply with spiritual, religious, Buddhist practices, whatever you want to call them. Um, mm. I'm aware that time is running out. And Brooke, I wanted to come back to you. If you wanted to add something to, to what we've been saying so far about that article, because you were the, the co-author, you can certainly do that. But one thing I'd, I'd like to ask you, really is, is what kind of um, success have you been having with the Courage of Care project? Um, has there been any kickback? And, and what do you see as the next that say, uh, well, we could, I could word it in two ways for you and you choose whichever one you prefer. The, the next big challenge for you as an organization or the next big stage of change or development. You did speak about the need for healing of members of that organization and providing that rather than just going out in the world and trying to carry out action. Is there something else you'd like to talk about as well? I would say in the response to the conversation you all were just having that I think we're stressed. Like we are stressed people, we're stressed communities. Even those of us on the front lines or those of us deeply engaged and committed to the work who you know, have no doubt in our minds about what our life's work is are also feeling it. And I see that among my peers, among my colleagues and in the communities that we're working in and with. And I feel like under stress, we have a really hard time embracing complexity or embracing this complexity capacity that we're talking about. And so some of the most fundamental work, I think, is still tending to and trying to heal and nurture and nourish stress bodies. And whether that looks like rest right now, which might seem ironic or like who's got time to rest right now, finding ways to keep us sustainable is a critical part of the healing work. And so that feels like a future direction for courage that I don't, I don't see us straying from anytime soon. How do we continue to nurture each other? And how do we continue to help us? There are some of us, you know, stuck in this la-la land, if you will, who don't, aren't really fully aware of or aren't capable of embracing the totality of the challenges that we actually face right now. And I feel our work oriented part of the way in continuing to try to wake folks up, take the crises of our time to them in ways that are digestible and understandable, not palatable, but in ways that will help them stay engaged and hopefully become even more engaged.